welcome to Less Than or Equal, the podcast about pursuing equality and geekdom by celebrating the diverse in their accomplishments. I'm your host, Aline Sims, and today I am joined by Dr. Robert Carter. Robert, welcome. Thank you, Aline. How are you? I'm good. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So, Robert, who are you? Well, thanks for asking. I am a 59-year-old heterosexual Caucasian male. I am uh, married and have been for the last 31 years uh, together. My wife and I have a son who just graduated from the University of Texas. And I work at uh, Texas A&M University as a university psychologist. I'm starting my 26th year there uh, this fall. I hold a PhD from the University of Florida in psychology, a master's degree from Western Carolina University, and a BA in English from the University of North Carolina. I consider myself to be a a very big geek. I've been involved in microprocessor-based technology since about 1975. I'm a huge, unashamed to admit, Apple fanboy. I love what Apple is doing these days, how progressive they are, their designs, their their products, their um, ideas about accessibility, making all their products usable by everyone. So I imagine we'll be talking more about my obsession with Apple as we go along. I'm a voracious uh, reader. I read 100 books last year, and I'm well on the way oh toward uh, doing that again this year. I am totally blind and have been uh, since birth, and I don't let my blindness get in the way of living a full life. One of my favorite things to do is to travel, and we've been fortunate enough to be able to go lots of different places in the world, perhaps the furthest one and maybe in some ways the most interesting one. In 2013, uh, we took a trip to the continent of Antarctica. And uh, that was really fascinating and really interesting. And people think of Antarctica as being the visual continent because of all the colors and the ice and everything. But there are lots of great uh, sounds to hear there, including penguins walking through the snow and all the sounds that they make. And uh, I do a podcast about Apple accessibility called the Tech Doctor Podcast. And I actually uh, have a podcast up there called Sounds from Antarctica, which uh, lets people hear some of the cool things that that I was hearing while in uh, Antarctica. So I have lots of different interests, lots of hobbies, lots of things going on. I guess I should mention that I'm a a musician, singer, songwriter, and we occasionally play out in some of our uh, local establishments around here. So kind of in a nutshell, that's uh, basically a thumbnail sketch of who I am. I am exhausted just hearing you talk about all of that. It sounds amazing, though. Well, I didn't mean to wear you out. (laughs) So... Wow, I don't even know where to start. Um, let's talk about so um, as we were um, emailing about you know doing this interview and about me coming on Tech Doctor, um, you sent me an article that you wrote for uh, the Loop magazine um, about how um, technology and I think Apple technology specifically has had a profound impact on your life. And I imagine that's part of why you're such an ardent fan of Apple. Um, Can you talk about that a little bit? 
Sure. Um, when I was a uh, high school student and, and, and uh, before, I had no real way of completing assignments other than to type them on a regular typewriter. I went to public school, and so none of my teachers knew Braille. I, of course, knew Braille, but to get assignments turned to them that they could read, I had to type them on a typewriter. But I could not read back what I had typed. I knew how to touch type. But if I forgot where I was or the phone rang or the doorbell rang or whatever, I just had to rip the paper out and start over because I was not able to read my own writing. But in the early 1980s, the Apple II came along and there was a board that you could purchase to plug into one of the slots of the Apple II, which was a speech synthesizer card called an Echo II. And that made it possible for the Apple II to speak the information that was on the screen. It was not just uh, the information that was on the screen that was put up there, for example, when you would go into the uh, basic interpreter where you could write basic programs, but with some special software, you could also get it to speak things like word processing information. And so for the first time ever, I had a talking word processor that was able to speak back to me what was on the screen. We also quickly figured out ways to get that information output in Braille and, and in other formats. And so I really became involved with the Apple II along that time. And I was about to go off to graduate school to start my doctoral program. And so that's really the first instance where Apple made a huge uh, influence on my life. That was really a, a wonderful thing and brought me a, a degree of independence that I had never had before. And I used that Apple II all throughout the uh, doctoral program. And even while I was at the University of Florida, I was able to get a, a, a grant to set up a training facility to teach other people uh, who were blind both at the university and in the community um, to to do these kinds of things that I was doing on the Apple II. It was really fun kind of being on, on the bleeding edge, if you will, of that technology back then. Then we went into a real uh, dark phase, unfortunately, when, when the Mac came out in 1984. Um, for about 20 years, the Mac really wasn't accessible to, to someone who – uh, is blind. It, it sort of was. There was one company that made a screen reading package for the Mac, but it was never. It never caught on. And so for 20 years, I had to move over and use the uh, the Windows uh, PCs. And but then in around uh, 2004, 2005, with with the uh, with OS 10 Tiger, um, Apple decided to really get into the accessibility. Uh, game in, in a very big way, and they introduced a a, a, a package built into the uh, to the to the Mac, um, which essentially is called VoiceOver. And it turns out that Apple was indeed very very committed to accessibility. They've steadily improved VoiceOver over the last ten years. They have brought VoiceOver to all their other devices, including the Apple TV. And much to my surprise, in 2009, the touchscreen of the iPhone. So uh, having the Mac become accessible and then something that I never thought would happen, have the 
iPhone touchscreen become accessible was extremely exciting. Another life-changing moment. Of course, we all we all know what has resulted since the since, since the introduction of the iPhone with with apps and just the way it has literally changed the the world and, and the landscape that we we all live in. And to have that be fully accessible is extremely exciting. It, it really has caused a major paradigm shift in the world of accessible technology because Apple was the first company to include their accessibility features in every one of their products at no additional charge. Prior to this, people who wanted access to a to a, a Windows-based PC, for example, would would not only have to buy the PC, but likely have to pay uh, $1,000 or more just to get some software and possibly some hardware that would give them access to that to that PC. So Apple really turned that, and there was actually an industry around accessibility, and Apple really has come along and kind of turned that industry on its head. And uh, Apple detractors will say, well, you're, you're paying for it because you're paying because Apple products are more expensive anyway. And, and and they are, but but you're not you're not only paying for uh, built-in accessibility, but you're paying for great customer service and well-designed products and and a lot of other things. But the point is, you're not paying anything extra for accessibility. And to me, that's that that's a real statement because I'm I'm such a believer that we need accessibility to be a, a part of everything that we do, and not to be not be something that's bolted on after the fact or something that you pay extra for. So that, that, that's that just, that's in a way how, how Apple has been very significant in, in my life throughout the years. So what was it like when you, you know, you set up that, that first Apple II and you got the card in there and like you, you could use that computer without, you know, someone sitting next to you or, or whatever, like, was that like magic? Well, it really was like magic. The speech synthesizer, at least compared to today's uh, speech speech output technology, sounded very, very robotic, robotic. and and it was uh, difficult for most people to understand. But it was not hard for me to understand because it was just like a breath of fresh air, mm-hmm. having access to what was on that screen. And I had taken a, a an AppleSoft basic programming course the year before, and I had a bunch of friends in the class, and they they had to be my screen reader. They had to to read to me what what was on the screen. We were writing the basic programs, and so uh, this was just a whole new door opening there. And I. I wrote some of my own programs and got involved with with a guy up in uh, Pennsylvania at the time named David Holiday who started a small company called Raise.Computing where he wrote uh, some software that was a really great talking word processor for the Apple. And David did this. Uh, he was an MIT graduate and so so was his wife, Karen. And Karen Navy is, is also blind and he wrote this software for her because she was at the time completing a PhD in mathematics uh, mathematics and point set typology, which is a really complex mathematical field. And she was having to use a, a, a type, different type balls 
to type her equations, and every time she'd have to do superscripts and subscripts, she'd have to switch to a different type ball, and it was very, oh gosh. It was very complicated and very tedious. And so David wrote this software, which enabled Karen to, to, to do her work, and it, it started spreading like wildfire, and people all over the country got involved with this accessible technology. So it was very exciting. It was, uh, you know, we learned an awful lot about um, super serial cards back then and dip switches and very geeky, very technical things that you just had to know about to make this all work. But it was really fun and really exciting. And I felt like, felt like I, I was really at the forefront of something that has just continued. So it's, it's been really cool to be involved in it. Why do you think, um, I know there's like the whole Apple dark time in the, especially in the nineties, why do you think they returned to like they started doing accessibility, started placing an emphasis on accessibility um, once Tiger was released? Because that's before my time. I started using Max in 2008. So that's kind of several years before I was even uh, more than peripherally aware of the Macintosh. There are different theories and, and different speculations about why it happened. Uh, some say that uh, a lot of uh, legal pressure had been put on Apple by some of the national organizations, especially the National Federation of the Blind, to make their uh, computers accessible. I think there had been some situations where some of the school systems in certain states had decided to purchase Apple devices and people were very upset that these Macs weren't accessible to to blind students. Um, others kind of believe that Apple really began to uh, adopt the idea that they really did want their technology to be usable by everyone. That's certainly the stance that that they take now. I don't know to what extent uh, they were kind of pushed into um, building these accessibility features into OS X. I, I don't know uh, firsthand all, all the ins and outs of, of how that came about. I'm just very glad for whatever reason that it did come about. And not only that it came about, but that uh, th there was a lot of talk when, when, when Apple first came out with VoiceOver. A lot of people said, well, you know, Apple has, has now... Um, crossed a T and dotted an I. They've met the the letter of the law and that's as far as it'll go. But that nothing could be further from the truth. Apple has really made accessibility a major emphasis of of what they have to offer in their company. And they they certainly wouldn't have had to have extended it to the phone and the iPad and the Apple TV and the watch and, and the other devices. So uh, it, it, it's really great to see them not only for whatever reason have made this commitment, but have really stuck to it and, and increased it as the years have gone by. So you've also talked about the iPhone and um, well, yeah, you just mentioned it. But, um, I went to Georgia and I think it was April and um, we had a really long shuttle ride from the airport to um, to the town that was our destination. And on our way back, there was a gentleman um, sharing the van with us who was blind. 
and um, using his iPhone to text people. And I was able to watch him interact with his phone. And it seemed like a really seamless experience for him. I know that there was probably a lot of trial and error, you know, as he like we all do when we're trying to figure out new technology. But um, how is the experience of using an iPhone for you? When I first heard about the iPhone 3GS, which was the first one in 2009 to actually have voiceover built in, uh, we were we were uh, in Italy at, at the time. And uh, I, I managed to uh, somehow download a podcast, piggybacked on some Wi-Fi, I think at a university or somewhere, and downloaded a podcast where people were talking about uh, the the how surprised and excited they were about these uh, about voiceover being built into the iPhone. And so uh, my wife still laughs to this day. My son and I w- were sitting on the uh, airplane on the way back. We we were sharing headphone, listening to this podcast, and we were both practicing the iPhone gestures on our pants leg and, <laughs> and Vicky was trying to figure out, you know, what, what in the hell were you all doing over there? And in reality, we were, we were just so excited about the possibility that, that you could use these uh, gestures that had been introduced for voiceover and get uh, feedback. And, and the way that it actually works on the iPhone is, is it's, is pretty interesting. I think the Apple engineers were, brilliant. When you use your iPhone visually and and you want to activate something, you simply touch an icon on the screen. But if you have voiceover turned on, touching an icon on the screen doesn't actually activate the icon. It simply speaks the name of that icon. So it it might say mail or safari or, or messages. But then if you double tap on that icon, or actually once the icon has focus, if you double tap anywhere on the screen, that will actually activate the icon. So uh, there are some gestures that you have to learn that are unique to voiceover, but I found them to be very intuitive, easy to learn. Of course, probably, you know, I'm a geek, and so I'm going to dive in and learn whatever is going to help me facilitate the things that I want to do in my life. But you know, I got the iPhone on one, I think on a Saturday afternoon and, you know, by Sunday afternoon, I, I was, I had uh, completely deactivated my other, whatever other phone I, I had been using before, which had some limited access, but nothing like what was available with, with the iPhone. So I found it very easy to adapt to. And, and, and any, but even to this day, I think a lot of people who are blind are still hesitant or afraid of or reluctant to to try to tackle the touchscreen because it on the on the surface it does seem odd that 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 one who can't see would be able to 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 participate fully with nothing but a flat piece of glass but but you really can and uh and and it it really works very well and not only can you you were talking about texting you can you can text like anyone does by uh, bringing up the keyboard and 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 tapping on the letter that you want to enter, and actually when you lift your finger off the letter, that's when the voiceover will actually enter that character. But you can also, in current versions of iOS, you can actually uh, put the phone into a what's called a, a Braille screen mode, and so you can use use uh, especially if you have 
something the size of the six plus, you you can put your hands on the screen as if you were actually typing on a on a Braille uh, typewriter. Of course, you're not entering Braille; you're entering regular characters into into the iPhone. But that's just another keyboard configuration that you can use. So if, if you know Braille, uh, I can actually switch to the Braille screen mode and and type information very quickly into my phone, into a text or an email or or any any edit field for that matter. That's so cool. I'm so glad that they have that. You know, it's amazing. Yeah, it's really been carefully thought through and, and well designed. And and you know, I I'm as I said, I'm a huge Apple fan. So I have I have a bias there. Of course, there are always things that can be improved and done better. And I will freely acknowledge that, but it honestly works amazingly well. What would you like to um, have improved on the iPhone? Well, it's, that's, that's a bit of a hard question to answer because I, I'm quite satisfied with, with how things are. But I think that oftentimes the improvements that happen are not necessarily things that I would have thought of. For example, mm. I suspect, I'm speculating here, have no inside information, but I wouldn't be surprised if the new iPhones in the fall uh, it make some use of the force touch capabilities that are now prevalent on the Apple Watch and exactly what they'll do with force touch i'm not quite sure but but force touch is where you press a little bit harder on the screen and that might bring up a a different menu or, or introduce some other uh possible options for an application and and i suspect that uh force touch might be used i won't be surprised if at some point down the road we see more haptic feedback on on the iphone i wouldn't be surprised if if at some point when we actually touch wh where a button would be on the screen that to our finger, it will feel like a button. And, and I think when that, when that kind of feedback is available to us, it will make the touchscreen even easier and more straightforward perhaps for everybody, but certainly for people who are blind to you. So I, I look forward to some additional uh, feedback on the touchscreen down the road. I have a strong suspicion that it's coming. I just don't know exactly when. Yeah. Well, with the watch having the force touch screen on it and now the touchpads, um, not all of the computers, I guess, have the force touch touchpads yet, but soon I can't imagine that it'll be much longer before the phone will. It'll be interesting. Yeah, I'll be surprised if it, it, it may not be this year. It may end up being next year. I don't, who knows? Apple doesn't reveal those things ahead of time, but, but I suspect it's coming in some form. And, and yeah, that with, with the new, uh, with the new MacBook, with the, with the virtual trackpad that, that doesn't actually move, but, but has the sensation when you, when you touch it, when you push on it, that it's moving. That's, that's kind of the direction we're heading in and and they did a fabulous job on the watch of course you know me i was up at 2 a.m ordering mine on the very mm -hmm. at the very moment <laughs> that 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 was possible and i've been very very impressed that the watch was fully accessible with voiceover 
right out of the box in, in version one. And again, that's just part of my excitement about Apple really sticking to their accessibility commitments. So what do you use your watch for? Because I'm having, um, I, I use it for the time and to check the weather and that's about it. How are you using yours? Well, okay. Um, one of the things that, that I am a huge proponent of is listening to podcasts and I subscribe to 60 or more podcasts and I, I, I listen to them using a podcast catching client called Overcast. That's and, mine too. And Overcast has, has a really a, a quite nice app for the watch. And so when I'm, uh, eating my breakfast or doing things around the house. And I don't really uh, either don't have perfectly clean hands or, or it's not convenient for me to dig my phone out from wherever it is. I will use the watch to switch to the next podcast in, in Overcast. I'm, I'm a baseball fan. I'm a New York Yankees fan. I'll use the at bat app on the watch to see when the next uh, Yankees game is coming up or to check the score during the game, if I don't have time to to listen to it or monitor otherwise, um, I use the watch to s send off a quick text message when it's not uh, convenient to to do it on the phone. And I find that Siri actually works quite well on the watch. Um, use it to get notified of things that are that I need to pay attention to that are going on on Twitter, for example, using the uh, Twitterific app on the watch. So I, I use it for a lot of things. I will even occasionally check my mail just to see what's there on the watch. You can't reply to mail in, in this version, but you can, you can read your mail. So, um, you know, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I think that there are certainly places where we're going to see lots of changes, lots of improvements with the watch, but I've thoroughly enjoyed mine. I I use it every day. Maybe I'll get there someday. Um, I needed it for work. So I was like, all right, I'll get it. But I was never super excited about it. And I use it about as much as I predicted I would. Uh -huh. um, so we'll see what happens. Yeah. You may find a lot more uses for it when version two comes out. Yeah. I, you know, I was at WWDC this year and um, during like the state of the union, they kind of went more in depth into watch OS two and, you know, the things that are going to be capable with that. And I'm really excited to see um, how developers end up using it. Um, I think that it's got a lot of interesting potential to it. I think it does too. I think it's going to be really interesting to see how far they push it and what it does, for example, to battery life on the watch as the watch becomes more independent from the phone. It's going to be fascinating. Yeah, I've never had an issue with battery life on my phone as is. No. So, yeah, as it um, as it does become its more independent thing, an independent device, it will be interesting. I hadn't considered that. Do you have the 38 millimeter or the 42 millimeter? 38. 38, yeah. Yeah. And so do I. And it's supposed to be not quite as good on battery life, but I, I tend to typically have 40, 50% battery left at the end of the day, pretty much every day. Yeah. I think I maybe have received a warning once and that was, um, I had a day of travel mm. and was like literally going for like 18 or 19 hours that day. So, but that's the only time. So I work, um, in development. I work with developers 
I am learning Objective-C and Swift so that maybe if I ever come up with an app idea, I'll be a developer of my own merit. Excellent. Um, so what, what would you like more third-party developers to be aware of as they're thinking about accessibility in their apps? Well, one of the things that we've done on the Tech Doctor podcast over the years is we have talked with an awful lot of developers. And one of the fascinating things that has happened is that uh, more and more we find developers who have a really accessible, fully usable app with voiceover, and they didn't even know it. They didn't even know about voiceover or know that it was accessible, but they followed the Apple guidelines and used mostly standard controls in their apps that voiceover would automatically be able to recognize and, and interpret appropriately. And so I think Apple has done a fabulous job of providing tools to developers. And I'm not saying that there isn't sometimes, I guess there usually is a bit of extra work that needs to be done to ensure that all the buttons have labels and that voiceover can read and to ensure that, you know, the, 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 the focus is where it needs to be when, when you flick to a particular part of the screen or touch a particular part of the screen. But I think that just, it's all about awareness and understanding. There's one thing that's really unique in, in my opinion about the Apple community. And that is that, the developers, for the most part, are very interested in participating in accessibility if they just know about it. Or I'd, I've written dozens, probably more than that, developers asking about this accessibility feature or this lack of accessibility feature. And I'm always, I always do it in 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 a, a, a kind way, approach it in a cooperative manner, because I think no one wants to get blasted for their app not being accessible. But I found that that 99.9% .9 of the time, the developers respond in the same way. They respond quickly. They, they want to do whatever they can to make uh, the apps more accessible. And so it really is like a community, there's just a community spirit there of us all working together. And I think, you know, I think recently Apple has highlighted on on the App Store some of the apps like Twitterific and some others that are really very accessible with VoiceOver. And so it's really gotten some attention, I think, because recently was the 10th anniversary of, of VoiceOver. And also the Americans with Disabilities Act was just uh, celebrated an anniversary. And, and so it, I think people are becoming more and more aware and really very interested for the most part in, in making this work for everybody. And that's part of what I love about, about the Apple community. I, I've never seen that kind of interest and enthusiasm on, on another platform before. So you've mentioned Twitterific and Overcast. Are there any other examples of um, apps that you use that do accessibility really well? Oh, there, there, are, there are just dozens of them. So many. Yeah. That's so good to hear. Yeah. I mean, of course, all of the Apple um, stock apps that, that come on the phone are very accessible, but 
it's more often than not when I hear about an app on a podcast and I go download it and try it more often than not these days it is accessible now you know of course there are going to be some apps that are completely visual like games and with with tons of graphics and and no no reasonable person should really expect those apps to be accessible because how how would you do that um but but the apps that are you know that that are can be uh turn the information can be turned into to synthetic speech and and spoken we have lots and lots to choose from and and uh the, the, there are a number of websites that kind of specialize in pointing out uh, the accessible apps appleviz.com being probably the, the the primary one but there, there there's a lot there's a lot to be said for for accessibility and and iOS apps and pretty much same thing is true uh for, for the Mac I I was recently heard um, a lot of podcasters using this new uh, VPN service called Tunnel Bear as as a sponsor for their podcast, and I was kind of curious about whether or not Tunnel Bear would be accessible with VoiceOver because I tried some of the other VPN clients a year or two or three ago and had some success, some accessibility, but some some found some problems as well, and so I, I just sent off an email to Tunnel Bear Support and asked them, do you work with VoiceOver? And they were back and said, well, as a matter of fact, we have just updated our apps to work with VoiceOver. Check it out and let us know if, if there are any issues. And I haven't gotten around to installing them yet. But, but you know, just to be, be getting uh, those kinds of responses from developers it makes it a really exciting time, honestly. Yeah, I... I really do like the Apple developer community a lot. And I have, you know, I think a lot of my listeners are actually part of that. So I'm not just saying that to earn favor with my listeners, but that is something that I I really love is that um, people are interested in learning and people are interested in community. Um, and I really think it's a good one to belong to. Couldn't agree more. Gosh, there's so much to talk to you about. I'm really interested in learning. No, I'm really in- interested in listening to the podcast um, where you recorded Sounds from Antarctica. Um, that's not one I, um, as I listened, I listened um, after you emailed me and listened to a couple of episodes, but I that was not one of them. So I'm really excited to to be able to experience that. Yeah, you have to dig through the archives. It's back in 2013. Okay. So where have you traveled? I'm going to get really jealous. So you've mentioned Antarctica. You've mentioned Italy. Where else have you gone? Uh, we went to Ireland uh, last summer and uh, England a couple summers before that. And we we uh, took a trip to Alaska one summer and uh, uh, went to uh, the summer we went to Italy. We, we also went to did sort of a Mediterranean uh, thing and went to Greece and several of the other surrounding countries in that area we our next big plan is to go and do scotland we we're all into watching the outlander series on on stars and we we had read the books and so now we're all about wanting to go to scotland which we'll probably do next summer but um it's just it's i find there's just no substitute for going places and having experiences and 
Uh, one of the things that's that's really interesting about Europe these days, I was really pleasantly surprised at how many of the the museums and and especially anything that is sponsored uh, by by the by the by the state or or by the country seem to have more than what we have in the U.S. Uh, lots of available uh, audio guides in some format that that you can walk up to to a painting and and push a button on the device uh, with some some headphones on. It'll give you a great description of uh, of the painting and, and what's there. And and uh, so I mean, there, there's a lot going on with with travel and making things accessible. And honestly, I think we need to do more here in the u.s but it's it's an exciting time to be to be traveling and i just consider myself to be so very fortunate that i've been able to to find ways to do a good bit of that so if you had to pick one one place you've been to recommend to the audience where would be the one place everyone needs to go i really really loved uh, ireland um uh, first of all, being being a musician, I loved the all the music there, and uh, we actually got to, uh, to 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 perform one night in a, a pub in Dublin, and that was really fun. and And uh, we rented a car and traveled around the country, and got to visit with a lot of the people in the various uh, bed and breakfast and places that we stayed, and just really, I, I'm a person who just loves to you know, talk to people and find out what, what they're into and what's going on with them. And of course, that's part of the psychologist in me, I guess, just having that great interest in, in understanding what people are all about. But the Irish people were so much fun to, to talk to. And, and, uh, I mean, I, I have fun and, and learn things everywhere I go, but I, but I really enjoyed Ireland. That's, that's, cool to hear because that's the the place like if i can only go on one like transatlantic trip i wanted to take my mom to ireland cool um it's something we've always talked about so it's it's kind of i get a little shot of affirmation when you said that mm-hmm. yeah but you'll love it yeah it's just um i want to go everywhere and i've been almost nowhere so <laughs> we'll, we'll work on that one one step at a time yes indeed so you're a musician. What do you play? I play guitar and, and mandolin, um, mostly guitar, but it's been really fun for me because my wife plays as well. And, and so does my son. And so, and when he was growing up, we would, we would, it's something that we would all uh, do together. And he, he's a really creative guy. He was, he was a film major at UT. So he's, he's hoping to be a, an independent uh, filmmaker. And he's, he, he said that and that often involves writing scripts and uh, sometimes some music as, as well. And so he's kind of combined it all into, into film, but um, just, just so, so much fun. There was always uh, lots of music around here, people playing different things, experimenting with different things. And, uh, you know, I can't underestimate or, or underemphasize how important I think th- that creativity is. It doesn't, you don't have to necessarily do it in music if that's not your thing, but you need to find some outlet, even, even, you know, podcasting, or you need to find some place where your brain is really given the opportunity to 
to free float and create and and push itself to come up with something new and interesting and i think we can all stave off some some of the some of the aging issues if we stay active in, in that way and, and and work toward that so i really i really love that aspect of of creativity i do too it's um it's unfortunate. I feel like, you know, going through school, we're not taught how to be creative. Yeah. Um, and I feel like, you know, people look around at people who, who draw or play the guitar or write or, you know, whatever that, that thing might be for another person and think, oh, I could never do that. But the reality is, like, you just have to practice. That's, mm-hmm. you just practice. You do it a lot. You do it badly for a really long time, but you get better. Um, but that's, that's just not something that we learn how to do anymore. Yeah. It's really sad to me that there's been such a de-emphasis on the arts and creativity and, and really that whole side of the brain in school. You know, we, we do a, I think a, a pretty good job at, at the university of, of, giving especially where i work the kids a lot of engineering skills or math skills or maybe uh science skills but we do almost nothing for the emotional side communications creativity that that whole area and that's that's a shame because it's a big part of who we are as human beings yeah and it's um you know, I'm in my early 30s now. So I'm just just in the last, I don't know, like, three to five years kind of started to figure myself out. Sure. And it's like, I could have used some help with this. You know, I don't know how we'd, you know, integrate that into, you know, a a higher ed course or whatever. But there's a lot that I messed up in order to figure out who I am now. I, I advocate for all of us doing uh, psychotherapy we could all benefit i actually um one of the best things i have ever done was have an ongoing relationship with uh with a therapist because um even even because sometimes it was just like i'd sit in there and i i just like unload and be like this feels really overwhelming and she'd look at me and she'd say that's because it's really overwhelming yeah. and even just getting that affirmation from an outside perspective was really, really nice to have sometimes. And that, that alone helped. Well, it's all about making that human connection. We all want and crave someone to really understand us and accept us for who we are, not for what we think we should be or what we maybe pretend to be. But to get there, you have to be willing to be vulnerable and take some risks and really be who who we are and for most of us that's a really hard thing to do because we're so good in our society at numbing it all out with whatever our numbing item of choice is and the more we numb the less the less we are real the less we are vulnerable and and the less that we're vulnerable the less we let people really get to know us and so the more lonely and isolated we feel and it's a bad cycle Mm -hmm. and i think that's where creativity can come into play too is you bet um you know doing this podcast has done more for me personally to figure out 
what I really believe in, what I really want to be. Um, and I've always done that through writing before, but, you know, talking to people with a lot of different perspectives has been um, invaluable to, to me. Yeah. And when you, when you do that, you really begin to get some new ideas and maybe refresh some old ideas. And it really allows you to find ways of growing and changing and moving forward yourself. And, and that's, what's really cool about making those connections with other people. People are cool. Um, so is there anything else you wanted to talk about today? Well, you know, um, one of the things that, that, that I am really interested in trying to talk more about anytime I get the opportunity is I I really want to do what I can in, in uh, the time that I have left to try to move this whole, uh, idea of, uh, blindness as being a a characteristic that that I have as opposed to being all that I am or or most of what I am because I think that that uh unfortunately blindness has really has so many myths and stereotypes assigned to it that it's very hard for uh people who are sighted to a lot of times get beyond those. I mean, if, if you, if you even, you know, take a look at what's in the Bible, for example, about blindness, you find that blind people are portrayed as helpless and totally dependent, probably blinded because of some sin they've committed or their family has committed. It's something t- to be associated with shame and, and guilt. And, and the only way out of it is to uh, have faith enough that hopefully a miracle can happen and your sight can be restored and you can become a, a whole functioning person again. And I've spent my whole life uh, saying, no, 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 that, that, that isn't, that isn't true. That isn't the way that this, that this really works. But, uh, and then also, of course, I think in general, um, on an awful lot of sighted people have never really had any significant contact with a, with a functioning successful blind person because it's a low incidence, uh, disability. And also, you know, we live in a, such a visual world that people are terrified of losing their vision, especially if they believe the stereotypes and the myths that when, if that happens to you, that you are helpless and dependent and, and that you can't take care of yourself and you'll be depressed and your life, you know, will, will just not be worth living at that point. Of course, you're going to be terrified of that, but, but that's not the way that it, that it is or that it has to be. But, but unless we're able to really begin to dispel a lot of those myths and change a, a lot of the, the, the thinking, not just the thinking, not just the intellectual piece, but also the emotional reactions that people have, we'll, we'll never be able to really integrate uh, uh, people who are blind into the, the mainstream as much as, as much as I would like to see happen. I'm, I mean, I'm pretty 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 stubborn about all that and i haven't allowed it to prevent me from living a a full life but but at the same time um there's there's a lot more work to be done 
in that area. And it's tough because it's not just not just work that that I can do, but it's but a lot of it is is work that individual people need to do. And and it involves dealing with, you know, their their own uh, fears and their own emotions and and taking the time to sort of uh, get rid of some of the old notions and stereotypes and myths and and replace them with something else. And and if I've learned one thing after 30 years of practicing psychology is that that's hard work for people and people move slowly and change doesn't happen in, in, in yards and miles. It, it happens in inches, you know, and, it, and it's, it's a lot of times two steps forward and three steps back and three steps forward and two steps back. It's not a straight line. And so there's a lot to be done. And I, I really want to try to find ways to talk about these issues more, to bring these things out and to really hopefully be, try to give people some vehicle for beginning to to to, to view things uh, differently when it comes to not not just blindness. Blindness is the one that I know the most about, but but to all uh, disabilities or differences, we we can apply a lot of these things to, to many other uh, situations. Although I think you know blindness in some ways is kind of is kind of unique in the sense that it, it's gotten such a bad rap throughout the centuries um that, that there, mm. there there's a lot lot to lot to work on there but but nevertheless that's that's a real real area of interest of mine these days so do you have any suggestions for listeners on how they can start shifting their perspective um you know beyond you know listening to shows like this and listening to tech doctor where they can start to um, understand your perspective and, you know, realize that there's really uh, a lot of stigmati- stigmatization around this and not so much a, like, it, it's not, it's not the end of the world. <laughs> well, there's a, there's a, a, um, a writer, uh, a woman named Rosemary Mahoney, who has written a number of successful books, including several travel books. Uh, and she, she sometimes, uh, writes things for O Magazine. And several years ago, well, not that many, a few years ago, she was she was asked by O Magazine to go to Tibet and investigate the very first school for the blind that had been created in Tibet. And so um, Rosemary went there with a lot of the misconceptions, preconceptions about uh, what it must be like for people who are blind. She assumed she would find you know the 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 kids re- rather depressed and rather dependent and and rather negative about things and she she found just the opposite but she really opened herself up to 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 learning and understanding and she uh came back and and wrote a a book um called for the benefit of those who see dispatches from the world of the blind and she really laid all these things out very well in in this book and it's the book's available in electronic format and paper format most anywhere uh books are sold but rosemary mahoney has really done uh the world a great service by by writing this book and it's it's a you know it's 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 not a difficult book to read but i think honestly it's a book that really um challenges people and and challenges uh people to drop some of their preconceived notions and and as human beings we're all 
a bit resistant to that. We're a bit reluctant to do that. And so I think you have to approach the book with some willingness to be uh, patient with yourself, kind to yourself, compassionate with yourself and take your time with it and really read it and take it in and, and chew on it and explore it. But, but, you know, help yourself move forward. So I'm, I'm a really big uh, proponent of the Rosemary Mahoney uh, book for the benefit of those who see dispatches from the world of the blind. Okay. Um, yeah, I think empathy, empathy is key, like to, to all of the things I talk about, right? It's, um, it's hard. I think. Yeah. <laughs> empathy is hard. Um, but I think that it's so important um, to making it through this world. And I think the value that I am most interested in being the highest on my list for myself is, is the value of kindness. I think that if we would take a moment to be not only kinder to other people, but kinder to ourselves, we really would naturally fall more into that place of being willing, ready, and able to, to, to feel empathy for others and for ourselves. But if, if we start from a place of, of judgment and preconceived notions and, you know, there, there's only one way and it's my way and your way is wrong and my way is right. If we start from that place, it's very hard to really reach much of a sense of empathy. And that, that so, so I think that, that we start with kindness though, and we really treat ourselves and treat other people the way that we want to be treated. Then we, we, we've already got a, a good foot in that empathy door, I think. I think people conflate kindness with being nice at all costs. You know, if you're a kind person, you let people uh, figuratively walk all over you yeah. or, or whatever. And that is untrue. It is untrue. So, you know, I, I read something the other day um, from someone who was like, I, I don't want to, I don't care about kindness. And, and I was like, wait, stop. And, and like, think about what you wrote. Like, you do not care about kindness. Like, our society, without kindness, our society starts to fall apart. I'm perfectly okay in a very kind and gentle and compassionate way telling someone it's not okay the way you just treated me or it's not okay what, what, with me what, what you just said to me. Let's, let, let's redo that. Let's, let's yeah. talk about what just happened here. And that can be done in, in a very kind and, and gentle way. So I think people are making a mistake when they confuse kindness with a lack of assertiveness or a lack of a, a willingness to, to, to set boundaries and stand up for oneself. Yeah. I have a really good example of this was actually your tech doctor podcast co-host, Allison. Um, I, I got a little, I got a board game. Um, Amazon had a sale, so I bought a couple of board games and one of them, and I can't remember the name of it, but it has this little figurine that's maybe like half the size of my thumb and it's a little panda bear. And um, my friend Steve Lubitz, um, who does the Isometric podcast and who's been on this show a couple of times, um, there's a running joke on Isometric about pandas. And so I was like, you know, like, oh, my gosh, Steve, look at this. And like I sent a picture and I didn't explain what it was. 
And uh, no, I did. I said it was like a teeny panda, but I didn't give any context. And Allison replied to the tweet and she was like, that sounds really cute. You know, <laughs> you know, why don't you tell me more about it? And I was like, you know what? I do a really, really poor job of um, of thinking about my visually impaired followers and what my pictures what context I'm giving to to the pictures that I post. Mm -hmm. And she was, she was very kind. She was very gentle. She didn't reprimand me, but it was a really good reminder to me that, you know, I'm failing on that and I need to do better. And, um, it was perfect for me anyway. Yeah. That, that's Allison. She, she's, she's really great at that kind of thing. And she is just that way. She's just a gentle, kind woman, but she's not afraid to, ask for a clarification or, or ask for what she needs when she doesn't get enough information. Yeah. I greatly appreciated it. And well, that's cool. Um, I thought it was a really good example of, of being kind, but, uh, getting what you need. Yeah. So absolutely. Uh, Robert, how can people find you online? Well, the website where the tech doctor podcast is, available. It's, it's just a standard WordPress website. I don't unfortunately have enough time, energy, will, or whatever to, <laughs> to, to, to fancy it up very much. Yeah. So it, it kind of is what it is right now, but that's at dr-carter.com. And, uh, I'm on Twitter as Robert underscore Carter. Those are probably the, probably the two, uh, best ways. Although if, if people would like to get in touch with, with me through, email, they can uh, send an email to tech doctor spelled out T-E-C-H-D-O-C-T-O-R at dr-carter.com. Wonderful. Well, you can find the show on Twitter at less than or equal. If you have feedback, suggestions for guests, or would like to be a guest, please go to less than or equal.com and fill out the contact form. It works. If you have a few minutes, it would be wonderful if you'd leave a review or even just a star rating on iTunes. We also have a Patreon, which you can find at patreon.com slash Aline. Um, and really the number one thing you can do if you want to help the show out is let people know about it. So that could be leaving a review on iTunes, sending out a tweet, uh, courier pigeon, whatever, whatever floats your boat. Thanks so much for listening until next time on an internet near you. I am Aline Sims for less than or equal.